Well, good morning, ladies. Good morning. Welcome. Welcome to our February Bible Moderators session. We're looking at our beloved book of Zechariah, chapters 9 through 14, and looking in our study book at chapters 12 to 14. Um, my notes are more closely tethered to the text. That is the text of scripture, more than the text of, of Michael Barrett's well-written book, the next to the last word. But, but there are things in the, the book that do carry over, and I have brought a few of those over. And I know Wanda Wildman here has actually has, excuse me, has a wonderful little chart of integrating the chapters of Zechariah with the chapters of the book where he has references to scripture and that corresponding chapter of Zechariah. So this is two ch three chapters from his book and five chapters, five, <laughs> in the prophetic section of Zechariah. So it's a lot to take in. Six chapters, thank you. Uh, so we're, uh, we're flying at a little bit higher level because of that, because you can't cover six chapters of prophecy in X amount of time very well. So uh, my notes reflect kind of hovering at a little higher level. The good news is when we get into Haggai, we'll have several months in Haggai, and it's a shorter book, and uh, I think you'll feel a little better pace. And his book more closely corresponds with the text of the book, of the scripture, which I think will make things easier. So we all, uh, it's wonderful to be together. Let's, uh, let's do our, our year verse, and then I'll pray. So this is from Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Malachi 4, 2. Our Father and our God, you are the one who is altogether righteous and we thank you for the shepherd, the one who was pierced, taking our very sin upon him. And we rejoice in such a rich and full salvation, even spoken of here in Zechariah, that we might be cleansed and forgiven from the fountain of his righteous life and his blood. We thank you that we are cleansed. We thank you. I thank you for these women and their sincere love for you and care for those in their circle and for your word. We ask that you might teach us, that you might lead us as we look at taking this large section of Zechariah, that it might be real in the lives of the ladies in the circles, that we might live in light of the hope of your word and promises, and that we would be people who are marked by a commitment to you. We give you our praise and we cry out for your help in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. So uh, you'll notice, I'm sorry these photos are so almost postage stamp. I feel bad, especially since one of them is a Michelangelo, to put it in a little postage stamp, the one on the right, uh, uh, which is entitled The Final Judgment. And it's quite a, it's quite a painting. Uh, the photo on the left is by an, uh, an anonymous painter, but I think it captures part of uh, what we find in the first oracle of Jesus's coming. And then, of course, in the second oracle, we find uh, the final judgment and the consummation of all things. So uh, I just thought it'd be good to have some type of little visual I'm sorry they're so small, but you can enlarge them on your computer as you desire or find other 
suitable uh, images that may be appropriate. So we're no longer focusing on the temple, uh, the land, the people resettling in the land. Although the the grand truths presented here affect the lives of the people that they might have and live in light of the hope of the promises of God. Hope. Hope is such an important theme in the Bible, and it's something that's woven through these two final sections of the book of Zechariah, of these two final oracles. Uh, even, even here, Zechariah's name is not referenced, but uh, it's all about the Lord and his people and God's good plans for his people in judgment that will ensue upon those who are opposed to the Lord. Uh, but we're to have that hope and live in light of the hope of what God has promised that he will do. Here in this passage, we learn about the great events of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, of his promise coming. We find that especially in the first oracle, starting in chapter 9 through chapter 11. Uh, We learn something even about his life and ministry, why it is that he came, and how some responded to him in his own day that he was uh, rejected. He was despised and rejected. Uh, And then we, and, and that's the first oracle. The second oracle gives us another snapshot And that is from his ascension during the period of the church that is established to his return from glory to consummate a new heavens and a new earth. And so this covers a span, the span of the ministry of our Savior, the span of our own period of time where Jesus is ascending and reigning, and then his final Return. It touches on the Gospels, these words of prophecy. Uh, It also, I'm so glad we studied the book of Revelation last year. Some of the imagery even there resurfaces here, comes out, and some of the grand truths of the Lord's word. You know, and like them, we too are people who are waiting, we're preparing. You know, we're trimming our lamps, as it were, for our bridegroom to return in his righteous triumph and mighty glory. Um, and so we are a people who need to know that we have a future and a hope and live in light even now of that hope, that hope that can purify us from sin as the scripture says. Now, oftentimes, when you come to these sections of prophecy, the, the prophet sees things and writes and communicates them in light of the information and of revelation that he's received and, and what he knows up to that time. So oftentimes, there's not a clear, this is not systematic theology, where things are laid out nice and neat. One chapter here on Jesus is coming and another chapter in Jesus' return. It's all kind of jumbled together in places. There's a great overlap. In the, in the second section, you learn something more about why Jesus came. In the first section, we learn something of, of, of coming judgment. So these are general principles that 9 through 12 are focusing primarily on Jesus' coming his sacrificial work, uh, the lack of reception to him by the Jewish leadership especially. And then in the second section, uh, the church of the Lord Jesus and the battle and struggle that we are in as his people, the spiritual warfare that we have, as well as the coming glory when Jesus returns in his triumph and consummation. And so uh, I think it's really helpful to read this with great care, uh, realizing that it is 
to a large extent, especially the second oracle, apocalyptic literature of things to come using imagery and such. And it requires a little different interpretive hermeneutic. How you go about understanding it? How do you go about reading it? Because it's a different genre of literature. Just as if just as if you were reading a history by Char- is it Charles Egger who wrote the South Carolina history? Okay, Egger. Yeah. Yes. Okay. If you if you read that volume, Walter maybe that that volume on the history of South Carolina versus if you read um, poetry by South Carolinians who have been here from over the course of that same time, it would be a different genre, a different approach to understanding. Uh, Apocalyptic literature in, that we find is the true word of God meant for our encouragement and our souls, just as the other parts or sections of, of uh, literature. So that, that's a little bit of just an overview on what we're going to be diving into. I want to read at least a few verses as we get into looking at this first oracle and you may have noticed on my outline, just to help with a little bit of consistency and maybe some familiarity, I'm drawing upon the outline of Michael Barrett on page 115. Uh, so that's what I'm doing. There are other ways that maybe it could be done, maybe some simpler ways. But I just thought to have a little bit of, of connection and some continuity that that may be a good and wise approach. So we're going to be looking first at chapters 9 through 11 at this first oracle. And I'm going to read a few verses. Um, I'll just announce the verse since I'll be, since there are many verses and I'm not going to read them all. So from uh, starting at Zechariah chapter 9 verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is its resting place, for the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. Reading at verse 8, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my eyes, my own eyes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I'm sorry, this one says donkey here. Um, And then verses 16 and 17. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. And For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. And then from chapter 10, starting at verse 3. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle for From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. And then down in verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah, I will save the house of Joseph, I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Let's, uh, let's, and then chapter 11, verse 7. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered. 
by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one named Favor and the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. Well, let's... It's a little bit of a sampling of some of this first oracle and some of the theological themes that that arise there. Uh, again, we're following Michael Barrett's outline of this section. And he begins looking at chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, on God's determined judgment against his enemies. You know? We find in the book of Deuteronomy both the blessing and curses of the covenant for God's people, but even those curses are designed to woo them back, but not so with God's enemies. He is a righteous and holy God, and there is a day, a day coming in which his enemies will be judged. And here, is a clear and certain destruction. If you look at the verses, he goes through, I just read the first verse, but he goes through every one of their neighbors, of their pagan Canaanite neighbors who, didn't, who do not know the Lord, who are resisting him in the judgment. Uh, it's very descriptive. It's quite graphic in places uh, of what will happen. And... Uh, <clears throat> But at the end of that section, verse 8 of chapter 9, uh, God makes a promise. A promise that he will protect, that he is with his people. He, will, he himself will encamp around about them. And while the nations will be judged, his believing children will be blessed. They'll be protected. They will be safe. They will be uh, secure. Uh, he shall be their guard so that no one shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. And he promises to see to it with his own eyes that this will indeed happen. And it speaks of the safety, the security we have. And ultimately, you know, the Lord Jesus speaks of that. In that great chapter, John 10, where he describes himself as uh, the good shepherd, laying down his life for the flock, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life or everlasting life, and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. The Father who is greater than I has given them to me, and no one will be able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Safety, security on the day of judgment. Believers, because of Christ, will stand and indeed will be blessed. Judgment upon enemies, blessing upon God's people is how this oracle begins. But then it focuses on how is it that his people indeed will be blessed. And it's because of their relationship with a coming king. This is a well-known passage. You've heard it read probably most seasons of, of Advent or near Christmas. Rejoice greatly, chapter 9, verse 9. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, and a colt, the fowl of a donkey, is what my translation has here. So it is the promise, it is a gospel promise that the great king, the king who indeed would be greater than David, would come, that he would reign, that he would rule. And there is to be great rejoicing. There's supposed to be great joyful thanksgiving to the Lord at the wonder of what God has sent his king for his people. And we read that the, his reign, his rule will be unlimited. The Bible is very concerned about land 
and boundaries. And a king's reign was, would be defined by the geograph, geographical bounds of the land over which he ruled. But look at this king. Here we, were, we, we are reminded in verse 10, at the end of verse 10, I believe. <clears throat> yes, he will speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a cosmic rule and reign over all the earth. He is the sovereign over all the world. Um, now think of that hymn about Jesus's kingdom. You know, it will constant remain. Is that right? Did I have a word? His kingdom shall reign from shore to shore. Yeah. Shore shore to shore. yeah. And I'm all, then there's another one in there about his kingdom, uh, about kingdoms will come and go, but constant his kingdom will be. Maybe I imagine that up in the middle of the night. But uh, I thought there was a hymn along that line. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, so in the sense of the people of the Lord, at the glory and the beauty, the grace of what God has done, there's a a sense of wonder, of marvel, of expectation in chapter, in chapter 9 towards the end. You know, his people are as the jewels of a crown. That's what the Lord thinks of his people. Uh, <clears throat> for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. You know, do you think of the goodness of the Lord to you? Do you think of his beauty the wonder of who he is and what he has done, of this great king coming not as many kings on, uh, on stallions, on horses of war, but on a donkey, on the fowl or colt of a donkey, as it were. Uh, it's quite a, a marvelous picture of the character of this one who is to come. Here, there is also reference to the fact that the Lord knows the thoughts and intents of the heart, that he is all-seeing, he is all-knowing. He knows the relationship of each and their relation with respect to this coming king. He investigates, he examines with perfect knowledge and right understanding, and he is a God who judges those in their relationship with this king. He punishes those who are not in a right relationship with him, but he blesses those who through faith seek out this king. No one will escape his all-seeing eye. And in describing the ministry, the role and function of the king, um, we read in chapter 10, and I believe this is highlighted also by Michael Barrett in one of his chapters about the Lord Jesus being a peg which is safe and secure, that can support and hold you up, that can carry your sin, your guilt, the judgment of God against your sin, that he is secure and trustworthy, safe and strong. He can handle your troubles excuse me, and your cares. But he's also that battle bow. He is uh, uh, the Lord of hosts, which is a picture of the angelic host and the Lord in battle. You know, he is a warrior prince. A defending, protecting his people, but also bringing perfect and righteous judgment against those who are opposed to the Lord. Um, I, uh, so, the, you know, that is what we find here, that he is an able defender of his people, uh, that he is the one who provides grace and love, but he also brings judgment uh, on, against those who are opposed to him. 
our Westminster Shorter Catechism question, I think, captures Jesus as a warrior king in question and answer 26. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That is the picture here of this image of the, of the bow, uh, the battle bow that is given to the Lord Jesus Christ. The final aspect of this first oracle has to do with the leaders of Israel in Jesus's in the king's own day and the judgment that God would bring upon them for their foolishness and resisting and rejecting and opposing and piercing this coming king the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the chapter that's chapter 11 there is reference of God's judgment on the shepherds and that should be plural because it's it's more than one shepherd it, uh, on the shepherds arms and eyes because if you think about it if you're a shepherd you've got to use your arm to work you have to use your eyes to see, to see the enemies, to see your sheep if they're wandering off, all kinds of things. And these are the very things that are described of being judged by the Lord. The very things required in their work in service of tending the sheep so that the sheep suffer because of the wickedness and the foolishness of these shepherds who fail to honor the one true shepherd. And when you read about the wickedness of these untrue shepherds, all it does is highlight the glory and beauty of our true shepherd, Jesus Christ. I think the book of Ezekiel chapter 34 that talks about the false shepherds and and uh, that God will raise up a shepherd. Uh, you know, I myself will raise up a shepherd among you. Highlights as well the beauty, the distinction of Christ from all other shepherds. Uh, for Christ is the one who truly cares for his flock. We read that he lays down his life for his own. He guides. He protects. He feeds them. He leads them. He seeks them out. He cares for his flock. The imagery from Isaiah 40 of his gathering his lambs in his arms. Uh, and I had already mentioned something with respect to Ezekiel and the image there of ultimately of the Lord Jesus as that one promised shepherd to come. This is the first oracle, God's judgment upon the nations, God's coming king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true shepherd, but he was rejected. And we'll learn more in the next oracle about that rejection, but he was rejected by the foolish shepherds of the day. All of this is designed to bring hope for a beleaguered people who are back in the land. It's believed now that they finished their work on their temple. But God needed to give them hope. They needed to know that their future, while it seemed bleak in this world, that it is bright, that it is full of promise that God will fulfill. Let me just pause here. I've been going for a while. Y'all probably have your minds filled with all kinds of stuff from reading and thinking and trying to figure out how do you take this 
to your to the women in your circles in terms of their lives. So let's pause for a moment for comments, thoughts. David, do you think you know the war in the Middle East and there's a correlation with all of this because they've rejected the shepherd, all of these peoples. All of these peoples. There are a few Christians, um, you know, and a remnant um, in some of these lands, but I you know it's just incredible how we're reading this and the, and the enemies and and the hope of and all this, but they don't they have rejected him. And so um, I, I'm praying so mm-hmm. for the people of Israel and all that to come to Jesus Christ yes. and to have a mm-hmm. knowledge of him. But see, all of these terrorists are fighting in the in the name of false gods. Of uh, it's just it's exactly. just there's nothing new on the face of the earth. It continues and playing it out, continues doesn't it? Continues playing out until Christ comes again. Yeah. But I think we as a church we need to pray hmm. that people will accept our good hmm. shepherd, that they will accept him and the knowledge of him, because until they do, it it's unending. Right. And it's so sad and yeah. the innocent, you know, that are killed and. But anyway, I just wondered if you had thought about, you mm-hmm. know, uh, a correlation or whatever. I, I have. Um, I mean, yes. I mean, it's just so obvious. Yes. They, I love this where he says, uh, uh, I will whistle them and gather them in for I've redeemed them. And somewhere around here, and he says, and they, they will remember me. They'll, yes. They'll remember the voice somewhere along It's that shepherdy imagery and the call, the distinct call of the shepherd that the sheep knows and hears and they follow. They know and they follow and he will come seeking them, so whistling for them. So judgment of God and his wrath among people who have rejected him is that, you know, there are lots of things to, to think about, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of earthly parallels, you know, to, um, you know, this, the Middle East and, True. and um, of rejecting Christ as the Messiah. And but building on Sunday's sermon, yeah. they have to want. God has to send the Holy Spirit to make them and want. Grace. That's that. Yes, my and question grace. was about right. that, chat, that Because they don't, they don't have they do. It, I mean, and our understanding of the Bible yeah. is man is well, this is what the Bible teaches. Man is spiritually dead. And it takes something outside of us. It takes the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, to intervene, to intervene, to invade, to quicken us, to, to bring us to life, to regenerate us. We can pray and, they, and, and go and get the, try to get the word out as well. Yeah. The thing that's so amazing to me is how, and I know there are other ladies here who are in Mark Ross's Sunday school class, how much this echoes mm. Isaiah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just significantly yes. so, although, what are they, 500 years apart or something mm-hmm. like that? About, yeah. So, well. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's some basic truths and themes that the Bible develops and expounds upon, and... Uh, you know, these major themes you hear time and time again. And I think I want you women to be, uh, I, I know when you come in and you're teaching five, five chapters, right? <laughs> six chapters. Okay, thank you. It keeps on growing in my mind. Six chapters of, of Zechariah. It can be daunting. So I want you women to go in with some confidence, go in with just, what are the main truths here? Because if you start digging, if you start going into the weeds, it's going to be hard to come out of the weeds and you're going to get lost. It's better to kind of hover <laughs> and get it to the main points. What are, what's the main teaching for our lives? What was, what's the main message for them? And I think it's some of these truths that we're hearing and some that Michael Barrett brings out when, in his chapters when he talks about the character uh, of, of Christ. Um, they lived in the already and not yet, but not nearly where we are in the already and not that's yet right. because we can see the donkey and we go, yes, that's happening. True. You know what I mean? We've been given the privilege mm-hmm. of seeing much fulfilled, mm-hmm. and that should be such an assurance as we see this next oracle and just know Absolutely. that we know that we know. Sure. Mm-hmm. 
He has one. He has one. The way it's laid out is very, um, very nice and succinct, and so you're not getting lost in the weeds because there's so I many. You start yeah. reading comedies, it's like, oh, yeah. Okay. So um, anyway, uh, and it would take many pages. I, I mean, I've read a few the, commentaries. I the simplicity. The, well, you know, you're honing in on what the main point. That's important. We're trying to and. I think using that outline from Michael Barrett can help us, maybe to those who are looking at the book. And if we were going to say, okay, ladies, these are our three main takeaways, how would we give them a three main? I would do two. I would do it just like this. But yeah, I mean, it's two because how much you could do it to three. You know, you want to keep two to four divisions. So. So what would be your two? My two would be just what you, well, my two are the judgment of God, Zechariah 9 through 11, and the victory of God, Zechariah 12 through 14. But it's the there you same go. thing you've yeah. done. I, I didn't yeah. Yeah. The judgment of God, Zechariah 9 through 11, and the victory of God in Zechariah 12 through 14. Yeah. But it's just like David's done it. Or yeah. yeah. Sure. Page it's simple. Very simple. Exactly. Judgment and victory. Judgment and triumph. You know. This is great discussion. We've looked at the first oracle. I want us to be able to get through and land the plane on the second oracle. So let's let me read a few verses from um, starting in Zechariah chapter twelve. I'm going to start at verse seven and then verse ten. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. There's a reason for that. Verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin. And uncleanness. Verse 7 of that same chapter. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And then in chapter 14, verse 3 and verse 9. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And then verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Speaking ultimately of the united work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is outlined here. So, so now we come to the second oracle. And the second, and, and notice, I didn't read the very opening of the second oracle, uh, t- chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And if you look back at chapter 9, verse 1, the burden of the Lord, of, of the word of the Lord is against here. This is a distinct oracle, and it's referring to slightly different information. He's using that device, the burden of the word of the Lord, in an intentional way. And in the second oracle, this phrase, on that day, occurs 15 times. And that day isn't just one day. It refers to a period of time, a season of the coming age. 
Zacharias sees down the corridors of history to when the Lord decisively establishes the triumph of his people and establishes their fortunes. The benefits that we received in the Lord Jesus will be fully consummated for all eternity. We've experienced them now, but we'll fully experience and enjoy them and him forever. And so this, these chapters are related to our present age. But chapter 14 is clearly as eschatological. It's our something that we look forward to, the final consummation of all things, much of what we looked at in the book of Revelation. So let's look at the three sections here for a few moments together. Here he begins in chapter 12 describing the ways in which the nations are attacking the people of God attacking Jerusalem. Now, there are several ways of taking this, and there is some bearing on the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. Ultimately, it's not against flesh and blood, but this whole oracle describes the period from the ascension of Christ, let's say the book of Acts, essentially, down to through our own day. And so we're engaged in a great conflict as well. And here is just a reminder of the the victory, the triumph of the Lord's people, that he will deliver us. The nations are attacking Jerusalem. But there is a promise of divine intervention The Lord's arm is not short, and he will come in. They will be, the enemies will be defeated. If you read it carefully, you'll see they're actually defeating themselves. They start uh, clamoring against one another even. And I mean, it's a logical conclusion of the foolish ways of this world, that they turn in against themselves. Uh, But the beauty and glory of the gospel is that they, our enemies, will be destroyed. And we will be delivered. It, uh, when, you say, when you're talking to the, the nations are seen, attacking, seen attacking Jerusalem, yeah. Uh, uh, is, uh, are you speaking of Jerusalem as the people of God? Is that what you're saying? I'm, I'm speaking of Jerusalem as the people of God. Yes. But there is an understanding... That, and, and there are different approaches on this, and that's fine. That it is also uh, an attack against Jerusalem. Some would argue that. Some, some of our believers, some of the people who have preached in our own church. And, and I mean, and that is, that is there. That is, the, that is here as well. And I'm, I'm not, not going to put those two against one another. There's no need for me to. There's nothing... Nothing that indicates it's only one or the other. And it, and it makes sense that there's some of both. Actually, it bears out what our uh, leader was telling us a few minutes ago in terms of uh, those attacking Israel, even in our own day. So, you know, but we can have confidence that God is the one who is at work. This uh, promise from Romans, if God be for us, who can be against you? Who can be against us? Think of all the people who are against you, perhaps, or have been against you before. But God is the one who is for his people. He will provide. He will deliver. He will see to it that his people are taken care of. And so here is a picture of the advance of the enemy of the infantry, of their cavalry, but of their advance being impeded completely, frustrated. And think of the confidence. Perhaps you have seen, 
I don't know, this came out a long time ago, so maybe we can all identify with it. Uh, one of the Rocky movies where Rocky's, you know, battling out with, wasn't it a, a Soviet uh, boxer? Do I have that right? Do I have that right? Yeah. And he wins in the final analysis, and the American flag flies, and people are, you know, <laughs> saying USA, USA, and, you know, there, uh, there's that sense here. But even in a greater way, just think, all of God's enemies will be put down, and all of God's children will rejoice and be lifted up, and the battle will come to an end. And we will share in the triumph of our God and Savior because He's the one who is destroying these enemies ultimately. I mean, that's what's captured and described here. I mean, they're doing a number on themselves too. But the Lord is the one who is with His people. Let's press on just so we can... uh, So this first part, I mentioned that there may be a very much of a physical physical component, a spiritual component, certainly in the next section in chap- of chapter 12, starting at verse 10, is definitely this outward deliverance of the Lord leads to an inner cleansing and renewing of the people of God, leading them to true trusting God and repentance. And that is what asks catalogical truth is to do to know that you will live with the lord jesus forever that you will triumph over sin should help you even now in being devoted to the lord and in the battle against sin not throwing in the towel but pressing on if that makes sense and i think that's part of it here that they might continue that they would turn from that which is false, that their worship would be delivered to true worship. They would rejoice in the Lord from the heart. And here is this beautiful picture of how God is giving both grace and engendering his people in, in prayer. That those who look on the Lord Jesus are spiritually awakened. And they're brought to life by the one whom these foolish shepherds put to death. And it was actually, as we read in the New Testament, our own sin, ultimately, that led to Jesus going to the cross. Your sin and mine, where he voluntarily went to be pierced uh, And all of this is to lead to a life of joy, of worship, of praise, of prayer. And the focus here is that of of intercession, that of prayer, that of pleading to God, going to God. And I'm just struck that the Apostle Paul, who had threatened the church before when he was Saul, he was persecuting, contributing to Christian martyrs, when he came to know the Lord Jesus and was brought to, is it Corinth? Um, it was noted where the Christians were not ready to receive this man into their fellowship. Is, this, is, is he a spy? Is he a plant? You know, is he going to kill us? Is he going to turn our names in? You know, what's what's going to happen here? Um, but it was noted that he was praying. And that was a sign of new life and a new relation with uh, with the Lord. And here, Zechariah makes it very clear the true identity of this king shepherd, that he, unlike the false shepherds, is a true, true shepherd. He is the one who is the one mediator between God and man and Verse 7 of chapter 13, he's described as my shepherd. He's my fellow. This is the Lord God omnipotent, uh, Jehovah speaking. And it speaks something of of Jesus' identity, of his divine origin or his equality with God. I don't know if Jesus had this in mind. 
when he was teaching in John 10, the verse I read earlier, where he says, I and the Father are one, this whole section about shepherding. He may have been reflecting back here on Zechariah, possibly. Uh, But while Jesus is fully God, indeed we know he is also one who is fully man, who suffered and died for the sins of his people. And while he was persecuted, killed by the shepherds, we also read here that the sword of the Lord smote him, as the old King James, in judgment, because he had the sin of his people. And it shows just how holy God is that his perfect, pure son, who had our sin upon him, is unclean and judged in our place. The cross is very prominent in this section of Zechariah. And it speaks of both God's great divine love and his divine justice. The whole question of the Apostle Paul that he asks in Romans about how is it that God is both just and the justifier of sinners, if that makes sense, is dealt with here even in the book of Zechariah. And it is Jesus who is that cleansing fountain uh, here that's described. It really is a a beautiful picture uh, of this uh, lovely fountain that is flowing. And um, uh, I'm trying to think of the commentator. I I did not put a footnote, but it was not my original thought. This Okay, this fountain is the only means for sins of man to be forgiven. Now, that was my words. The evil actions of men and piercing the Savior fulfill the divine purposes of God. No, <laughs> I'm talking about the location of this. I think I have it in my notes here somewhere. The location of this fountain. Uh, oh, it comes after a reference to Christ being pierced by men and being executed by God's sword. Uh, so so it's, it's because of Jesus' death that's described here. And then this flow of fountain. That's, that's what I got from one of the commentaries that I looked at. The timing, the placement of that is so beautiful description of the cleansing we now have because of Christ and his crossed work. And we always, the cross of the Lord Jesus is always central. Even after we come to know the Lord Jesus, we remember his work on the cross. We are identified with his cross work and that we were crucified with him uh, and that we died of sin uh, as well. Well, let's look in just our final minutes at the final chapter, chapter 14. Unlike chapters 12 and 13 that have uh, concurrent overlap with our current history, chapter 14 is more clearly apocalyptic. It is something yet to come and be fulfilled. Um, Barrett describes it, the coming of the Messiah. What he means is the return of the Lord Jesus in triumph and in victory. That Christ is going to return. And he will deliver his people forever. He will overthrow his enemies and uh, establish his people. The new age, the age of the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus. It's already begun. It's inaugurated, but it will come to full fruition. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And his people will be completely devoted to him. The very sin that we struggle, that we hate, will be removed and be removed forever. We will be like him in terms of our character. And we will know him. And he will be, the covenant will be fulfilled. Back to our 
Revelation chapter, opening verses of Revelation chapter 21. But God will bring judgment against the nations fully and finally. And this is a show of power. Sometimes nations will do military maneuvers to flex their muscles, to show their powers, or even drop all kinds of bombs on nothing just to show that they've got power and, if the, and, and, and they can do it. Well, God is displaying his mighty power, not for the show of nothing, <laughs> but for his people and for our full redemption and salvation and that he loves us and is committed to us and he wants us to be protected, to be safe and secure. And so he gathers the nations to fight against Jerusalem. And they are put down for all eternity. And he triumphs. What hope we have in such a great God. What a marvelous destiny we have in Christ. Let me pause here and just let y'all chime in. Maybe I'll, I'll kind of push it a little bit along this line. Do your women know the hope, the hope of heaven? We tend to not even understand the glory that awaits us. I wish I had that C.S. Lewis quote because I'm just thinking of it now uh, where he talks about, uh, it's like children um, making children at the beach playing, making mud pies when, I'm butchering this, (laughs) when when like uh, the whole beach is before them, our whole glory is before them. Maybe we'll talk for a second. I can find it quickly. Uh, How about y'all's thoughts or comments here just in our final minute or two together? David, I remember talking about prophecy again. Yes. His comments, um, pages 27, I think, through 29 or 28, where he says that um, prophecy, God doesn't give us all the facts so that we can figure it out because we would be fatalist, you know? It would, it would cause us to lead us to fatalism. We're given prophecy to fuel faith. So I thought that was such hmm. a huge mm-hmm. um, when you're thinking about that is good. Um, how confusing this can be, but we see the big picture. We can understand yeah. it. Uh-huh. We understand what we need to understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts or comments? Yes. I just wanted to say, um, you know, Zechariah supposedly the the um, prophet of encouragement. Well, this is definitely encouragement. Hmm. And it was given to a sinful people back then. Yes. And um, who were, you know, that side of, of the cross uh, didn't know hmm. anything about Jesus coming or anything. But this would certainly have to encourage them greatly. Absolutely. Um, and God knew that. And and gave it to, to yes. through the prophet. Yes. And, uh, well, and fi- one final comment. All through the ages, you think of all the persecuted Christians, and certainly so many in our day, and how much even more meaningful I think this is to mm. them. True. The hope of victory. I found the quote. <laughs> C.S. Lewis from the, uh, the Weight of Glory. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are too easily pleased. It's just quite a reminder of for us to really meditate on the glory that awaits us let's pray together our father we do praise your name we rejoice in the triumph that we share with our savior the glory that does await us help us to live in light of this hope 
Help us to be those who make your word known. Bless these women's as they, women as they study and reflect upon this portion of your word and as they teach it next week. For Christ, our Savior's sake, we pray. Amen.